Uh, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Gilbert. So glad that you are with us. Uh, we are going to continue our series in the book of John, like Kristen said earlier. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, either on your phone or smart device through an app, or if you have a hard copy of the scriptures, I think that's probably best. Uh, open up to the book of John. So typically what we do here is we take a book of the Bible and then we try to work through that kind of verse by verse through certain sections every week. And we are getting close to end our series in the book of John. If you were here last week or you watched online last week, you got to see uh, our friend Shannon. So Shannon uh, is a pastor in Tallahassee, but Shannon was on staff here with us for about six years, uh, went through Missional Training Center, which is our seminary. And so it was super fun to have him be back in the house. And it was a, another great sign of life. Our, this church has a commitment to be an influence and an impact beyond uh, our campus and beyond our generation. And so Shannon represents that. And it was just thrilling to have my friend back, and we get to send uh, people out to foreign lands like Tallahassee, Florida, where he's at. So uh, it was cool uh, to see him. So John chapter 20 is where we're at. I'm going to read this section of scripture, then we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to help us, uh, and then we're going to go outside and eat hot dogs and jump on those bouncy things till we throw up. It's going to be a good day. Uh, Yeah, so we don't have to clean it up. Who cares? All right, John 20. Here we go. Uh, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus. So Didymus is a nickname of Thomas. It means twin. Uh, Thomas most likely was not an actual twin uh, because parents wouldn't name their child twin. Um, It was a nickname for like a personality trait, actually. So Thomas kind of had this kind of like dual personalities. We're going to see that a little bit as we get into who he is. Uh, He's one of the 12, uh, verse 24. He was not with the disciples when Jesus, when Jesus came. So this is post-death burial resurrection of Jesus. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace, be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Some uh, versions will say move from unbelief to belief. And Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. And there's a type of beatitude here where Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray and ask God just to help us with our text here briefly this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. God, thank you for just what you've allowed us to see and experience already. What a huge encouragement and joy to see these parents uh, take this step and commit that which is most precious to them to you, Lord. And for us as a church, as a community, as a family of faith, to have the opportunity to dedicate along with them, uh, God, just our lives in the raising up of the next generation to live out lives that make much of you, Jesus. Uh, As we come to this text this morning, God, I'm just so struck and have been struck with how much we need your presence. Because there are people in the room, uh, there might be people watching online who in many ways are like Thomas who need to be able to see you, to believe into you. 
And God, we, uh, we need you for that. So we need your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move with power? Would you move with freedom? Would you give us uh, the sight that we need? Would you give us the ability to hear from you? God, I know that I'm asking what I don't deserve, but I'm asking what only you can give. And so Holy Spirit, come. We need your power. Jesus, we need your presence in this place. We ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen. Well, if you have been a follower of Jesus for really any length of time, then you know the reality of the Christian life is that with trusting come trials. And through those trials, our trust is tested. And sometimes in those trials, um, we begin to doubt and we begin to wonder. We begin to have Questions, And I don't know if you've ever had a season like that in your life. Maybe you're in a season like that in your life. Maybe that's the whole reason you're here because you're in a season like that. I personally have had a season like that in my life where you just don't sense or see that God is working and you begin to doubt and wonder and have questions. And the good news is, we're going to see this in the scripture this morning, is that if that's you, you're not alone. In fact, one of the things that I love about the Bible is it's extremely relevant and honest, and it's honest about people who have that kind of experience in the scriptures. And, I, and what we're hearing and what we see Thomas here, really, if we're honest, is every person's desire. If we are an honest seeker or a sincere seeker, we want fundamentally what Thomas is asking for here. And I love that John creates space for it in his gospel account, but I love even more that Jesus is the one who provides the satisfaction for that desire. And Thomas really isn't the only one who's looking for proof in the scriptures. In fact, the disciples, the close followers of Jesus, uh, they were shocked uh, that Jesus was actually risen from the dead. They didn't expect that. And so when he shows up, they're all pretty surprised. They struggled to believe Jesus in that particular area. In Mark chapter 9, there's another account. There's a man who uh, he brings his son, and his son is having these seizures, and he's trying to throw himself in the water to drown himself, or he tries to throw himself in the fire to kind of burn himself up. And, and this guy brings uh, his son to the disciples for help, and they can't, and Jesus shows up. And the man is desperate, and he says to Jesus, he says, if you can help, will you? And Jesus says, if. He probably didn't say it quite like that. He probably had a little more tact, but. And then he makes a statement. He says, nothing is impossible for those who believe. And the man, this desperate father, says, I, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I love this passage. I, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief because I've got serious doubts about what I haven't yet seen. Anybody relate to that? John the Baptist, one more. So John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist is kind of like a forerunner for the ministry of Jesus. He goes before him. John the Baptist is the one who sees Jesus in the distance and he points him out and he says, behold, right there, that guy, that is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is the one who baptizes Jesus early on in his ministry. 
And there's a moment where John the Baptist is in prison. He's going to be executed. And he's sitting there and he's having these thoughts. He's having these questions. And he sends his followers, his disciples, to Jesus. And he sends them with a message. He goes, go to Jesus and ask him, are you really the sent one? Did we miss it? Is there somebody else we should be looking for? Are you really the right one, because I've, I've got some questions and I need some answers. And the reality is when you begin to trust in the Lord, it's not a conceptual understanding. It's not just simply this mental assent to who he is. It's a trust in the phrase we've been using through John is it's a belief into Jesus who is Lord of all, who's Lord of all meaning he's Lord over your finances and your future and your identity and your sexuality and your hope and your purposes, all the things. You're saying, Jesus, you're Lord over all of them. All of life is all for Jesus. And so often when we don't see God working in a certain way that we want him to, or we think he should, we begin to have these doubts. So this morning, we're looking at this character. He's commonly known as Doubting Thomas. Even if you're not a Bible person or a church person, you've probably heard that phrase. It's kind of a popular phrase in culture. Don't be a Doubting Thomas. You've heard that before. And it's easy, if you are familiar with the story, to to read this story uh, and kind of have this critical eye towards Thomas. Like, come on, Thomas, how could you doubt? I mean, you walked with Jesus for three years. You're one of his closest followers. You've heard him say all kinds of credible things. You've seen him do all kinds of amazing things. But if you dig into the person of Thomas, which we're going to do just a little bit, there's some clues about him that it's not really doubting in the way that we're conditioned to think about doubt. In fact, uh, the word doubt's not really even in the kind of original translation or the original language there. Um, and, and, and that book is barely in, or that word is barely in the book of John, but that's what we've assigned to Thomas. But he, t- he needs a deeper look just as we, as we start this morning. Because Thomas really is the kind of guy that you want on your team. There's a moment uh, in, in Thomas's experience with Jesus where Jesus says to his followers, we're gonna go down to, to Bethany. Bethany is this area that's near Jerusalem and the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, hey, listen, they don't like you very much there. In fact, if you go there, they're going to kill you. What they're really trying to say is if they kill you, they're probably going to try to kill us too. And Thomas turns around to the rest of the disciples and he says, look, y'all, let's follow Jesus down there so that we can die with him. If he dies, we die. Let's roll. I mean, Thomas is the dude you want on your team. He's a like, literal ride-or-die guy. He's not flaky. He's not wishy-washy. He's actually pretty resolved. He just needs clarity. Some of you, when you, when you first came to know Jesus, there was this, just this shift, this kind of change in your life. We're like, all right, whatever it is, I'm at it. I'm at church. I'm Sunday school, Bible study, small group, mission trip, serving. I'm doing it all. Like, I'm just, whatever it is, I'm down. That's how Thomas is. He's that kind of guy. But then there's this other side of Thomas, hence the kind of the 
Didymus or the twin. There's this other side of Thomas um, where it's, it's like this. In John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's talking about, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And a lot of times when Jesus would talk and he would describe things, uh, it wasn't necessarily on the nose. He would talk about these things in kind of like picturesque language or maybe these kind of like poetic ways. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been around people like that where like you know what they're saying is good, but you don't quite get it, but you just kind of like nod along. I'm like that. I'm like, I know that I'm not smart enough to like get it, but I am not going to out myself in front of everybody. So like if I don't get it and I know it's supposed to be good, I'm just going to nod. I might even throw an amen out there, even though I don't get it. But, but Thomas is not like that. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you know the way. And Thomas is like, uh, no, we don't. You didn't tell us. <laughs> How are we supposed to know? We don't know the way. Don't say that. We don't know what we're doing. Do you ever have a, a kid in your class or maybe you have a kid in your home who's like this where like they need to have absolute clarity? Like they have a question. They're the kid who sits in class. They're always like, teacher, like always, they always have a question like that. Thomas is kind of like that. He just needs to know every single detail. It's got to be clear for him. I'm the kind of person where like, if you said, hey man, we're going on a trip. I'm in the car before you even finish the sentence. That's all I need to know. We're going somewhere. All right, I'm in. I'm, let's go. My wife is very different than that, which makes for interesting conversations because she needs to know, okay, well, where are we going? Question one. I didn't even think about that. I just know we're going somewhere. Well, what's it going to cost? Who's going to drive? When are we going to stop to pee? Who's packing all the snacks? Where are those shoes for the kids? All these questions she has. I don't have all those things. I'm just like, hey, we're going to go. Let's go. When I left for college, I had 20 bucks in my pocket and a fresh pair of British nights. You don't even know about that. But in fact, when I, I didn't even have a place to live. I'm not exact. A lot of pastors exaggerate. Sometimes I do, but this is true. Um, <laughs> When I went to school, we used to have to stand in line to register for classes. I didn't have a place to live. I just went there, and I'm standing in line, and the guy in front of me was like, well, hey, where are you living? I'm like, I don't really know. He's like, you want to live with me? I was like, sure. You look like you haven't murdered anybody recently, so I'll live with you. It's better than living in my pickup truck. That sounds good. Thomas is not that kind of guy. Thomas needs more information. Uh, Thomas is courageous. Church history tells us that he was actually martyred in India, but he just needs clarity. And he's the kind of guy, if he's going to be all in, he just needs more information. And, and to be honest, having questions is not bad. In many ways, doubt is a byproduct of faith. There's a commentator, his name's Bruner. He says, such vigor of disbelief plainly represents a strong urge to believe, held down by common sense and its habitual dread of disillusionment. We've all experienced that. I, I believe, but I don't want to be wrong. I, I, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. The author of Hebrews gives us a description of faith. He says it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's a conviction, a confidence, or evidence, or proof of things not seen. Proof of something that you don't see. What happens when you don't see something and we have no proof? 
there's an uncertainty there. That's what's happening here. I believe you, but I just don't see it, Lord. And what you see Thomas doing is pressing into Jesus to get more clarity. Because the reality is there's two postures that you can take when you are lacking evidence or you're lacking proof. There's the posture of doubt where you investigate or you seek God When you investigate, you're looking into the scripture, you're praying, you're seeking counsel from God's people. It's it's a posture that says, God, I know you're there. I know you're doing something. I'm just not seeing it. So I'm seeking, I'm looking for more proof. I mentioned a season where I went went through a real season in my personal walk with the Lord where there was just a lot of doubt swirling around that. This was while I was a pastor. And, and I just remember in that season, I, I, I tried to get into the scripture as much as I could and co- tried to ask God to, to just to speak to me. I, I, I tried to get, get, you know, when you I feel like your prayer is just not getting off the ground, but I went through that kind of season. I went to every single environment I could where I felt like, okay, there's going to be the people of God there. I got friends who are pastors in other denominations and other churches. They're like, hey, we're having this meeting. And I was like, I'm not in that denomination, but I'll go. And who knows? Maybe I'll meet God there. Maybe God will talk to me there. Every single time I went to anything that had like a altar call or like a prayer, hey, come forward and we'll pray over you. I mean, I had all kinds of people praying over me. And I went forward just saying, listen, I'm having serious doubts. Will you just pray for me and over? And eventually God cracked that. But then there's also this posture when you're doubting that's not investigating, but it's interrogating. Like you start to make demands of God that he better show up the way that you think you should. Investigation comes from being invested. Like I'm invested in this. I'm invested in you. Interrogation comes from from divestment. Like God, if I don't see it, I'm out. If you don't do it just the way that I want, I'm out. It's as if you're telling the Lord, like, I have these demands that have to be met. That's not the posture of Thomas here. There's an interrogation that comes from our culture of independence and autonomy and do it my way. But, but, but God invites us to investigate a life with him, submitted and laid down to him in relationship with him and with one another. And our fellowship, our community, this gathering, this family of faith should be one where the sincere seeker can find a family that walks with them, is for them in the ways that God is calling out to them. And we should be an encouragement and support to those who have wandered to return to the truth of who God is uh, and who he says he is. And I think I'm guilty of this just as I've been kind of sitting in this passage and thinking through this where we can take the kind of posture towards people who have left or who've wandered and we say, well, I guess you're not in the truth club anymore. You used to be, but I guess you're not anymore. And I don't think that's the posture that the people of God have here in this moment. It's certainly not the posture that Jesus has here either. The posture is more we're, we're praying, we're locked arms. We're here for you to know who God is. It's what we're seeing in this passage. Look again just at those first couple verses. So Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. But then Thomas makes it personal. So, so you, the disciples, they've already gone to the tomb. They've seen it's empty. Mary Magdalene has come back. She's actually seen the risen Jesus. Jesus says, go tell your brothers. Go tell my brothers that I'm, I'm, I'm back And Jesus shows up. He does the peace be with you. He just kind of appears in the room there, freaks them all out. 
He shows the hands, he shows the wound, he shows the clarifying evidence, but Thomas, Thomas isn't there, and the scripture doesn't tell us where Thomas is, but he's, for whatever reason, he's not there. And so there's this moment of corporate confession. Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas says, unless I, which is his own individual confirmation, see the nail marks and I put my hands to the nails, I will not believe. He's like, look, I don't care what he did for Mary. I don't care what he did for you guys. Unless I have a personal experience myself, your words will not convince me. And, what, and Thomas is doing what many of us do. What they're saying is my personal experience trumps the corporate witness. My individual confirmation is greater than a corporate confession. And when we come together and what we work through as a community or a family of faith, we have not seen the Lord. But we have a testimony or a testament. That's why it's called the New Testament of those who have testified an encounter with Jesus. And it's our corporate witness and testimony to one another that allows us to be strengthened in the faith. In the book of Revelation, when they're talking about conquering Satan, it says that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So the scripture has something to say about our corporate testimony to one another and to the world. One of the things that I love when we gather together is that when in this room, I, just, I know every week when we gather together, there are people in this room who are absolutely just going through it. That there are people who are battling sickness and disease. There are people in this room who've just experienced serious loss, whether it's physical or relational or financial. In their faith, they're just walking like trial after trial. And what fellowship is, what our coming together is, is we spur each other on in good things that God has prepared for us, and we give testimony to the risen Jesus, and we encourage the endurance to keep going, blessing one another. This is not churches when we gather, Christians when they gather, they are not rooms full of people who fully understand everything that's going on in our lives. That's not what this is about but we are a people who keep going. The scripture says that we are overcomers and we overcome by keep pressing into who Jesus is and who we are in him and his word and his promises concerning us. I heard one pastor talk about this. He said, we are a family of overcomers, not understanders. We're a family of overcomers, not understanding. We don't understand everything that God's doing in our lives. There's a lot of moments we don't get it. There's a lot of times I'll sit with some of you, you'll tell me the story, and I'm just like, have mercy, I have no idea. We don't fully comprehend what God is doing. We don't have faith because we've figured God out. We are a people who have had an encounter with the living God and he initiates faith and our faith is seeking clarity and your clarity will strengthen my clarity and your story will bless my story. And so I need you and you need you and we need us. 
This is how a church is built, that they, the grace of God transforms a people, and all of our stories of God's grace overlap and weave together in our lives, and in our troubles and in our successes, the name of Jesus is lifted up, and when people out there look at us, they're like, what in the world is going on? How is that happening with all of those different stories and those different lives and those different backgrounds and all those things being intertwined, and when they peer into, we say, we have seen the Lord, and it changed everything. And there's a winsome to this. There's our corporate witness, our corporate testimony encourages one another in our faith, and it attracts those with unbelief to come and see the risen Jesus. And when they encounter him, they move from unbelief to belief. Connor will say this all the time when he's leading us in worship, that when we worship together, the, the corporate voice together is what builds our faith. When we sing together in this room, right now, this morning, in this room, there are cancer patients who are lifting their voice when we sing these songs together. There are, there are people who have filed bankruptcy that lift their voice when we're together. There are people whose marriages are disintegrating or have disintegrated who make a loud noise this morning. There's a people who their faith feels like it's like the thread of a thread hanging on. And they lift their voice and they raise their hands, not because the songs are so great, but because their God is so great. And when you even have no voice, it's as if the corporate voice becomes your voice and like sings sings on behalf of you to encourage your faith. So Thomas has these eight days go by, and I don't know what those eight days were like for him. Um, but, I, but we do know one thing for sure, that in those eight days, he still didn't believe until Jesus comes back. Let's look real quick, and we're almost done. Verse 26, a week later, the disciples were in the house. Thomas was with him. The doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them. That's like Jesus' new move post-resurrection. It's great. It just shows up. It's awesome. Peace be with you, he says. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your, out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Move from unbelief to belief, Thomas. And Thomas makes the proclamation, my Lord, my God. What I love about this, and you have to just see the the picture that John's painting here is that Jesus steps right to the center. I mean, John has already told us that Jesus is the word made flesh dwelling among us. He's not just some ghost that's out there that's unattainable, that you, that's not near you. And, and that's really what John's painting for us, a picture of what's supposed to be evident when we gather when we gather like this, like the church did right there, Jesus should be in our midst, right front and center, the point of everything we say and do and sing. And Jesus steps right to Thomas and he says, put your fingers here. And you, and you get the picture that he's got his hands out to Thomas, put your hand in my side. Here's what I love about this, because this is what this shows. Jesus has been listening to Thomas in detail. So listen, because if you're, if you're here and, and you've got specific doubts about God, 
Jesus cares about the details of your doubting. He cares about the details of your doubting because he, he's listened to Thomas. He comes to Thomas and says, okay, Thomas, this is what you said you need. I'm here to provide for you in your midst, right in front of you, what you need to move from unbelief to belief. He honors this honest doubt. He knew every demand. He busts through the door and gives his presence. That's the grace of God. Thomas knows what you, or Thomas needs belief and Jesus shows up. He's like, okay, here's what you need for belief. It's, it's, it's me. And then Thomas has that proclamation, my Lord, my God. It's, it's the first time, it's the only time in the fourfold gospel that Jesus is addressed as God. It's the apex of the Christian faith. And Thomas has experienced Jesus not only as this universal Lord and God, but now as this personal Lord and God. The removal of Thomas's doubt is the work of Jesus alone. And, and it's interesting here because the demands are necessary before the presence of Jesus, but the presence of Jesus disintegrates the doubt. And when Jesus shows up and when he's there, Thomas says, my Lord, my God, because there's just something about the weight of the presence of Jesus. Another word, a biblical word is the glory there's, there's the heaviness of who Jesus is. When we gather together and we're always praying for the presence of Jesus to be in our midst because you're bringing burdens. You're, you're bringing your sin. You're bringing all your failure. You're bringing all the stuff that's just heavy on you from the week. You're bringing all the concerns. You're bringing all the fears. You're bringing all the doubts. You're just bringing all the stuff. And it's heavy, and what you need is the presence of Jesus and have his heaviness, his weight, his glory to overcome the weight of what you're bringing in here. And that happens in his presence. The reason why corporate worship is so important together is because there's a weight, there's a presence of God in the room and we can bring those burdens we bring those burdens and we experience the presence, the awe, the glory of Jesus. It's hard to be in awe of Jesus when you are in your pajamas, chilling on the couch at home, watching on the screen. And, and listen, I understand there are some people like you cannot be in a gathering like this. You shouldn't be in a gathering like this. So online is the only option for you. I, I get that. I love that that is an available option. But I also know for some of you, it's not the only option, but you act like it is. And it's not about pajamas. I don't care. Wear your pajamas here. It doesn't matter. It's about presence. It's about presence. Because we need you. And you need us. And together we need the presence of Jesus. And what we see here is that Jesus reveals himself in the presence of community. It's very interesting to me. Because Jesus could have gone out and found Thomas wherever he was. He could have showed up in the room. Peace, everybody. Hey, here I am. Here's the hands. He could have looked around and be like, one, two, three. Hey, Thomas, where's Thomas? He's not here. Okay, I'll go. Hey, Thomas, you missed it, man. We had a big meeting. I did a big reveal. You weren't there. So now I just kind of found you thing. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He reveals himself in the context 
of community. The presence of Jesus is experienced in the context of community. Now, I understand Jesus also meets us in solitude. He meets us in the secret place. That's true. I'm not debating that. But the body of Christ is in the embodiment of Jesus in the world. And it is often in the people of God that we see the face of God. John Calvin says, Christ still visits us and appears to us all, both invisibly as God and visibly in the body. He allows us to touch his holy flesh and gives it to us. I grew up in a church, this, this kind of Southern Baptist church, where every week the guy was like railing on all the people who weren't there. So I hate that. And I'm not trying to do that, right? And I was like, come on, man, we got it. We're all here. You're like, okay, I'm here. I got it. You know, kids are half-dressed, whatever. We made it. Then you see us parade them around here, right? We got it. So, why we, so I understand that. But what I'm trying to just briefly do is remind us of why our times together are so important. Because when we gather together to focus on Jesus, it intensifies our focus on him. I haven't been, had a chance to go to a game this season, but uh, last season for the playoffs, actually, I got to go to a Suns game. And what, it was incredible in that stadium. It was incredible in that place, in that venue, because every single person in the whole place was intensely focused on one thing. Nobody is in there talking about NASCAR. You know, and we had some NASCAR fans. No one's thinking about NASCAR. No one was thinking about ASU baseball. No one was thinking about anything else except the Suns all together, and our focus was intensified on what we were there for. And I just want to ask, if we can do that around a basketball game, can we not do that around the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Don't take that as a question for me, because I think God wants to ask us that too. And when we come together under the word of God, seeking the presence of Jesus, because an isolated Christian is an ineffective Christian. I love what Brian led us through this morning when we rally around these parents. Because an isolated family is an ineffective family. An isolated Christian is an ineffective Christian out for what God has for you out there in the world. You've experienced it. You've tried to do it on your own. It's miserable. When you've got someone who's locked arms with you, who says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through in your vocation. I know what you're going through in your marriage. I know what you're going through in your parenting. I know what you're going through just secretly, even in the quiet, just you and you alone. And I just want you to know I'm for you. Let me pray for you. Let me put my arm around you. Let me call you up. Let me give you some scripture that I read this morning that God brought to mind that makes me think of you. Let me come visit you at work and meet some of your coworkers. Let me, let me go and kind of walk and, and be with you and spend time with you. Because an isolated Christian is an ineffective Christian. We need the testimony. We need the fellowship. We need the word. We need the singing. We need all of that. But there's more to it. There's more to it. We don't, we don't just simply come to these gatherings. We don't just simply come to these to sit and to soak. And hopefully there's something entertaining that happens up here for you. That's not it. That's not what it's all about. There's this Christian author. His name's Dane Ortland. He wrote this week on Twitter um, where all great thoughts come from. Uh, but he was saying, what if, what if on Sunday um, 
When you went to church, yes, there was the word, yes, there was teaching, yes, there was the singing, yes, there was the sacraments, but what if you made it a point to go to at least one trusted friend and unburden some kind of sin that you've been battling this week? What if you said, I'm going to walk into that community, I'm going to walk into my family, and I know one friend that I trust, and I'm going to lay on them, this is the sin I've been just really struggling with, this is where I failed this week. And what if you dedicated, you said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find five people. I'm going to find five people in that community. I'm going to find five people at church in, in my family, and I'm just going to walk up to them, and I'm just going to encourage them. And even if you can't think of anything like biblically robust to say, you're just going to be like, uh, do you know God loves you? God loves you. I just want you to know that this morning. And you just went around, you found five people to do that. He says it would, it would change the church. In fact, there is a word in church history for what I just described. It's called revival. It'd be amazing to see that happen. Lastly, and, and we're done. In verse 29, there's this kind of beatitude that Jesus leaves him with. He said, blessed, he says, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus saying, look, man, you could have believed without saying me. You, you could have believed when Mary said something. You could have believed when the disciples said something. You decided not to believe. So blessed are those who have seen and not believed. That's you and me. Jesus is saying there's a blessing for those who believe into Jesus, even though they lack the proof that they can touch and see. Believing even though I don't see. And it's not a blind faith. People think Christians, well, this, well, that's just a blind faith. That's some kind of crutch in your life. That's not it. It's a faith that continues to seek and search, a faith that endures and keeps pressing in. And we spur each other on in that. I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to close here in a moment. And this is so needed because... Um, there's a movement right now in our culture. There's a moment right now in our culture of people who've just lost faith. You probably have talked to people, you probably know people like this, where they say, you know, I've just lost, I've just lost faith. Well, let me ask you this. What happens when you lose something that's valuable to you? Like, do you just say, well, all right, I guess I'm just gonna do life with no wallet or keys or phone or whatever is important to me. I'm just gonna go through my life. It's lost, it's lost, oh well. No. When I lose something, um, I make a declaration. I make an announcement in the grand halls of my home. And I enlist the help of those who are closest to me. My family at least for the sake of this illustration, they jump in and help me. But my family springs to action because I've lost something that's important to me, that's precious to me. And here's what someone will always say if you've lost someone, if you've lost something, here's what someone always say. My wife usually says this to me. Where is the last place you had it? Where's the last place you had it? Let's go back there. Let's start there. I know you don't see it now. I know you don't feel like you can hold it now, but where was the last place that you had what was precious to you? And a good friend, a good family 
will start searching with you. Will help you back to the place where you had it to help you find what was lost and precious to you. So I know that some of you, you've lost a precious faith. And so I just want to say, let us search with you. Let us search alongside of you. Some of you are like, man, I, I haven't lost it. I don't think I've ever even had it. Great. Even better, let us search with you. Let us walk alongside you. I believe that the disciples prayed for Thomas in those eight days. I believe that they prayed for his faith. I believe they were on their knees saying, Lord, you've heard him. He needs to see the hands. He needs to see the side. He needs to see you. God, will you show up in Thomas's life? And they welcome Thomas back. Thomas, don't, don't stay out there. You gotta be here with us. You gotta be in the room with us. And we're gonna lay hands on you. We're gonna pray for your faith. We're gonna pray that Jesus will show up in your life. And I believe they labored with him. I believe that became the prayer request of the church in those days for the faith of the one who didn't believe. And so church, how can we be praying for you in the midst of your unbelief? If you've lost that faith, when's the last time you had it where Jesus was walking with you? And, there, and I get it. There might be some of you who are like, man, you know, the church is the whole reason I lost faith in the first place. Now, I, get, I understand that because churches are a mess because they are filled with people who are a mess. But Jesus is in their midst the presence of Jesus is in the middle of that mess called his church. And the church will let you down, but Jesus never will. And he never quits on his church. So do you have questions? Do you have doubts? Have you lost faith? Because the best place for you to bring those things is here with the people of God seeking the presence of Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity to actually do that this morning. We're going to move into this moment of communion. We do this every week here. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, this moment is for you. If you, by your own confession, your own admission, say, well, that doesn't really describe me, uh, then we really don't want you to feel like you have to go through the motions just to do something because everybody else is doing it. You're free from pretending here. But for those of us who are, are Christians, who are confession as followers of Jesus, we take the body and the blood, we take the bread and the cup, and we hold them up as the only means by which we are saved. There is only one way that we are put back together with God, and that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on his cross, his broken body, his shed blood. And we take these things every week because we have days, we have weeks, we have seasons where we are not believing. And so we come back to the body of Christ. We come back to the shed blood of Jesus. We come back to the person, the presence of Jesus. There's an author, Steve Cust, he says, we are disciples, but we are not disciples of an illusion. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, which means our hope is not an illusion. Our, our rescue is not an illusion. Our peace is not an illusion. And our joy is not an illusion. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And so Christian, take 
and eat and drink in remembrance and celebration of who he is. And then Connor and the band, they're going to lead us in a couple songs of worship, but we want to create a moment. We want to create an opportunity for you. We want to give you a gift to actually practice what was just preached. James in James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James connects our confession and our prayer to healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing. It could be very acute, the type of healing that Thomas receives when he sees Jesus here. We're going to have some people in both corners up front here who are here to minister to you, to just pray over you. And so as we are singing, I just want to encourage you, just stand and get up and go to the corners of these rooms where we have pastors and elders and staff people who are there, who are just simply there to pray for you. Is your faith shaken? Do you doubt? Are you struggling with belief? Do you need healing? Do you need encouragement? Do you need to know more of who Jesus is? Just come and receive prayer. Let the church be the church. Let the family search alongside you and love you and care for you in this moment. And so stand and do that now. Connor's going to lead us in a little bit of singing.